If it wasn't for the TV series Chips, there would be no no Make-A-Wish Foundation. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. These words are not just an insult to our profession. These words have power, they are toxic, and they spread like a virus. I do not believe it'll be like uh, 1980s or uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10. That's Frank Shankwich, Melissa Block, and Lennox Scott. Make a wish, the state of journalism, and should you buy or sell property in 2020. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. Frank Shankwich is the founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation. He was in Seattle, and I had a chance to visit with him. Now, we have all heard of Make-A-Wish Foundation and some of the incredible dreams that they have made come true for children. It is a pretty spectacular story in and of itself. There's a movie about Frank's life. It's called Wishmen, and you can download that right now. Melissa Block is a special correspondent for NPR. She's going to talk about what it is like to be a journalist in today's environment when millions of people in this country think that you are the enemy of the people. Think about that for a moment. Let's say you're driving to work and you have a logo on the side of your car, like you are a computer repair person, you have a phone number, and you have the top person in the country saying you are the enemy of the people. It's truly a dangerous time to be a journalist in this country and throughout the world. Lennox Scott, CEO of John L. Scott, will briefly talk about what we can expect in the Puget Sound real estate market for the next year and beyond. Mr. Scott has been CEO of John L. Scott Real Estate for over 40 years. He recently spoke to the Seattle Rotary Club. The question of the week, if you could make one thing come true in 2020, what would it be? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your thoughts on the Voices of Experience voicemail. That's 425-653-1166. Back with Frank Shankwitz in just a moment. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Frank Shankwich, creator and founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, is my guest. Make-A-Wish grants wishes to children with life-threatening illnesses, The foundation has 64 chapters in the U.S. and another 34 internationally. Over 400,000 wishes have been granted since it began again in 1980. As a child, Frank lived with a tremendous amount of adversity. He spent his early years in tents and in trailers and eventually wound up in Arizona, where he graduated from high school and then went on to college. He joined the Air Force and was stationed in England. After receiving an honorary discharge, he returned to the U.S. After a successful stint with Motorola, he joined the Arizona Highway Patrol as a motorcycle officer where he nearly lost his life. He retired as a homicide detective after 42 years of service. While with the Highway Patrol, he ran across Chris, a seven-year-old boy 
who suffered from leukemia. Now, Chris wanted to be a highway patrol motorcycle officer, just like Pooch and John from the TV show Chips. Before Chris succumbed to his illness, Frank paved the way for Chris to become the first and only honorary Arizona Highway Patrol officer in history. His induction included a custom uniform, badge, and motor officer wings. He got to sit on Frank's motorcycle, which was exactly like the one that was featured on the TV show Chips. That was probably his greatest thrill. Chris was buried in his home state of Illinois with full police honors and Frank leading the police funeral procession. Frank has lived a pretty amazing life, which I can go into great detail about, but let's just get on with the interview. It seems to me that adversity has been your entire life, at least the very beginning of it. Do you think uh, the adversity that you had growing up really led to where you're at now and how you look at the world? Yes, definitely. And, and like you say, from the younger years, the mentors, the father figures, coaches, teachers, and this and that, um, you have to feel sorry for yourself. Okay, when you say adversity, um, you don't have much to eat, but you have something to eat. You, you don't have this and that, but you have something. And always that positive, look at that positive type thing. And I've just, that stuck with me my whole life. Never feel sorry for yourself. I mean, there's people that are worse off than you are, obviously. So any little thing you have, be happy for. And it's just slowly over the years where I got a little more comfortable, you know, better salaries, better living conditions, obviously, and it's just worked out. Well, yeah, I would think your mantra in so many ways is uh, from that mentor you mentioned, turning a negative situation to a positive. Turn it and find yes. something positive out of that. Was that really the game changer for you? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and I've applied that to my whole life, as I mentioned in there, uh, to work, especially uh, as a police officer. You can't do that. Why not? Well, it's just never been done. Well, why don't we do it? Well, and I'd find a loophole in the law where all of a sudden now they've changed the law, let's say, different type of arrests and investigations we could do. You can't do that. Well, let's, let's find out how we can. Take that negative to the positive. You also talked about the environment versus genetic. Based on your experience, it seems to me that it's much more environmental than it is, let's say, inherited abilities or disabilities. Well, yeah, and, and, and again, coaches, teachers, uh, military, just this whole group of people teaching this work ethic, character, integrity, and integrity is probably one of the biggest things. I mean, always, always be proud of what you do and make people proud of what you have done. Uh, don't embarrass yourself. Teach others, biggest thing, teach others with respect. If I'm real nice to you, what's going to happen? You're going to be nice to me, right? Yeah, yeah pretty much. Do that with everybody. Do that with everybody. And one of the things I learned too, I'm so pleased you saw this meet and greet. And I'm not boasting about that. But people, I'm, I'm so flattered when people want to take the time to come and speak to me. But I always make it a point. What's your name? Where are you from to live local? What do you do? To turn the conversation to them. Because now we're, they make me feel important by wanting to come up. But I want to give that equal thing back to them too. Tell me about yourself real quick. Well, I was getting frustrated because uh, <laughs> I wanted to interview you and we're here now, but I could see the magnet that you brought to the people and came up and they really wanted to meet with you because that came across in your presentation mm -hmm. that uh, you're that type of person. You're very approachable. What I 
kept thinking maybe about you is that you were at the wrong place at the right time or the right place at the wrong time. My whole life. <laughs> yeah, pretty fascinating that way. Would you characterize that as, as true? In, in a sense, yes. Uh, and I, I talked about, well, obviously the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but if it wasn't for the TV series Chips, there would be no, no Make-A-Wish Foundation. If it wasn't for... Uh, it was a custom agent uh, in Phoenix that introduced us to the little boy, told us about the boy Chris. If it wasn't for him, it would never happen. Why did I get chosen out of, uh, we had 60-some motorcycle officers at the time, to be the one to meet this little boy, to interact with him? I mean, just all of these small world events coming together all the time. Are there different type of wishes today than there were in 1980? No. Well, I say no, excuse me, that was such a spontaneous response. Um, in 1980, um, trying to think about, I want to meet the president, the kids would never think about that. Especially a computer, that's a big thing now. Uh, I want a computer, whole system. I want a, a green screen and video cameras so I can make my own commercials and movies. Uh, just like that, that's growing. But it's still a basic, the Disney is still the biggest, biggest wish. Um, I want to meet the sports stars, that's still a big wish. Movie stars, not so much anymore because who, these kids don't know, I don't know half the movie stars per se. We're, we're back in the day, there were so many of them. So you're tracking demographic shifts in, in many yes, ways like yes. that, you know, it's not, it's not it's yeah. a big a deal in, in other areas and sports stars still remain uh, Very, very list. popular. Wrestling, John Senna, he's a... Uh, uh, granted more wishes than anybody as far as meeting. And he's one of these top celebrities. There's so many, and, and I know they're busy. Uh, meet and greet, photo session, talk to the child, and it's done. Where John Senna and some of these other people will spend the full day with him. It's not just hello. Let's go hang out, man. And also uh, looking at, let's say, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. This is Mike Flynn's question, by the way. And so I wanted to let you know that. And that is evidence that maybe occurred unintended consequences that actually when you see kids get into this arena of positive outlook trying to get a goal that it may help them extend their life some sort yes, Is there yes. any evidence of that yeah and we, we didn't we didn't get into that and we call it the power of a wish and there was a study done now 25 years ago <clears throat> we would send the doctors would come to us and say it's a rush wish meaning you've got to do this for the next month or so. This child's not going to survive. They're strong enough, let's say it's a travel or whatever it might be. They're strong enough now, but within six or a month or so, they're going to be dead. The child goes on the wish, comes back, and goes into total remission. And a doctor's going to explain it. And I just say, you know what? This child has gone to something, and I'm so sick of being tired. i got stuff to do after the wish. And it's just maybe a mental thing. But when we started this, like I said, it was all terminal. We switched it to children with life-threatening illnesses. Now, and through the grace of God, modern medicine, like I'd say, 70% of the children are surviving. That's an amazing figure. In our original documents, we have a clause in there to put us out of business. That we won't have to worry about this anymore. There won't be no childhood cancers. Do you feel in some ways that you're filling a void the government is not? Ah, that's so hard. Um, and yes, I mean, just look at what so many government agencies are trying to control things. And this is, this is, um, we don't have to worry about grants, government controlling these type things. 
and this level up is going to be like I mentioned U.S. vets that I'm involved with. It's going to be the same model where we're going to get these kids off the streets and, and into the training, the, the psychological what's going on, uh, job training, job placement, permanent housing eventually, the same model what we do with U.S. vets. And with U.S. vets, the government is not involved. It's not part of the Veterans Administration. It is staggering to think that the one example today about uh, the level up where I wasn't aware of this. These kids were in foster care. They hit, what, 18 years old. They gather them up, put their stuff in a garbage bag and say, good luck. I mean, yeah. that's not going to work. And it hasn't worked. No, and, and, and I never thought about this. When Katrina and Rick first approached me about what we're doing, I said, I never thought about it. And I mentioned in there back in my narcotics years, <laughs> not a user, but as an agent, undercover agent, I, how many kids? I knew that. There were foster kids coming out. And they get in, they don't have anywhere to go, money. So they start burglars, robberies, everything else. And then eventually they get into that culture you are who you hang out with, right? So they get in that drug culture. Now we're arresting them, putting them in jail. And it's something I never thought of. So this is a program, and I think this is going to be like a Make-A-Wish or like U.S. Vets. This is going to take off here. I can just see this, and this is going to be nationwide. This is going to be the grassroots effort right here, but this is going to go nationwide. I've already got a group in Arizona from the state government for the Foster Kids program. We just heard what's going on. How do we get this in Arizona? We're not even, we're going to do a ribbon cutting day for the first place. Another state is already interested. Final question, and that is, what do we not know as citizens about law enforcement that we should? Wow, right now, respect. That's all. My thanks to Frank Shankwich. I heard about the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which I'm sure you have, but I didn't know the organization had its beginnings all the way back in 1980, and I didn't have a clue about how it started. What a fascinating man, and his incredible journey continues. Frank said that if it wasn't for the TV show Chips there never would have been a Make-A-Wish Foundation. And by the way, there is a movie about Frank's life and the story about the beginning of the Make-A-Wish Foundation called Wishman. Google Wishman and you can watch the trailer. Scott, CEO of John L. Scott Real Estate, spoke about the local real estate market at the Seattle Rotary Club. Mr. Scott has been CEO of John L. Scott for over 40 years. I'm pretty sure that most of you are interested in where the real estate market is headed in the greater Seattle area in King County. So I will pick up with his address as he talks about the projections for 2020 and beyond. So 2020 forecast. Uh, obviously, you're, you're hearing me predict it's going to be another great year in real estate because of job growth, interest rates. Uh, we're just humming here as the economy. Uh, if, uh, also, I wanted to talk about the uh, potential for a uh, 2020, uh, I mean, uh, the 10-year cycle. Uh, real estate goes in a 10-year uh, cycle. It follows the economic cycle of the nation. And this time we think it's gonna be a 12 year cycle just because of the job growth happening, low rates uh, for that. Um, my look uh, out ahead, um, it, can be, it can be all over the place. I'm not an economist, it's just my perception in business. If uh, uh, things go to the right, 
Uh, we'll have a great market uh, through probably 2023 and have an adjustment at that time. Uh, and then you'll probably go to the left. And then the, the business community doesn't like change. They want predictability. And then we'll see what happens at that point. So whatever, uh, or it'll go the other way. So, but there will be an intensity adjustment. Will be the last uh, area into um, uh, if there's any backdraft or the world recession, or we get into a national recession. Will be the last one in. Uh, the reset. Uh, this won't be a. This will be an adjustment for us, not a correction. Uh, it'll be like 1990 and like uh, year 2000 um, type of uh, adjustment. Took si take six months for the market to readjust itself, and then we start the next 10-year cycle. Prices generally go up 30% every 10 years uh, on, on average. They would have gone up more now because we went way below market and then went way back up. But uh, prices will go up uh, about 30%. Uh, in the next decade. So that's how it's positioned. It will, I do not believe it'll be like uh, 1980s or uh, 2007, 8, 9, 10 uh, uh, type uh, correction. It'll be in an adjustment uh, situation. That's Lennox Scott, CEO of John L. Scott Real Estate. Melissa Block, NPR Special Correspondent and co-host of All Things Considered from 2013 to 2015, is one of my guests today, and she was the recipient of the 2019 the Edward R. Murrow Lifetime Achievement Award that was presented to her at the Cub on the campus at Washington State University. And she is in incredible company. Just Google Murrow Symposium and find out of some previous giants who have won that award. Melissa delivered her speech to students, faculty, and guests. Let's pick up with her speech when she was talking about what it's like to be a reporter in this environment, let's say for NPR and any other reporter, and the state of journalism as she sees it today. An NPR colleague once told me, reporters have a skeleton key to the world. And it's true. We're really lucky. We get to go to fascinating places and ask nosy questions. And almost always, people trust us with the gift of their stories. Almost always. Of course, as we all know, we are living in a time when there is widespread distrust of the media, when facts are seen as fungible and fluid. We're having to figure out how to cover a president who, according to the latest tally by the Washington Post's fact checker, has made 9,451 false or misleading claims in 801 days. It's about 12 untruths a day. And as journalists, we find ourselves wrestling with precisely what to call that. Do we call these incorrect statements by the president lies or falsehoods? And if we try to truth squad these claims to refute the falsehoods, we might bear in mind what some social science research has shown, that doing so may instead have the opposite unintended effect. It's known as the backfire effect, the notion that people's faith in mistaken beliefs is strengthened even when presented with factual corrections. In other words, providing corrective information actually can make the misinformation more potent. By repeating the false claim in order to disprove it, we end up simply propagating and reinforcing the original falsehood. Another separate and also daunting finding, this one from researchers at Duke University, that exposure to contrary opinions on Twitter didn't make people more open to opposing views. It just increased polarization. 
And yes, we are living in a time when the press is routinely and constantly condemned by the president. Of course, there is ample precedent for media bashing from the White House. In 1970, it was Vice President Spiro Agnew who famously snarked about the media, calling them the nattering nabobs of negativism. In words penned by speechwriter and evident alliteration lover William Sapphire, Agnew went on, they have formed their own 4-H club, the hopeless, hysterical hypochondriacs of history. <laughs> From there, we've moved on to the latest iteration with President Trump labeling media as the enemy of the American people, out of control, crazed lunatics, traffickers in fake news. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. These words are not just an insult to our profession. These words have power, they are toxic, and they spread like a virus. Look at what other leaders that we see now dismissing unflattering media reports as fake news. It's autocrats, leaders of repressive regimes from Syria to Venezuela to China, Myanmar, the Philippines, Brazil. They're all taking up the cry fake news and brandishing it like a weapon to discredit and crack down on the press. And yes, we see this idea spreading more and more here at home. I was deeply disturbed when I saw a recent public opinion poll conducted by Quinnipiac University. One question was this. People were asked which of these represents their point of view. One, the news media is the enemy of the people. Or two, the news media is an important part of democracy. The good news, I suppose, is that overall 69% of voters went with an important part of democracy, 21% chose enemy of the people, but among Republicans polled, 47% said the news media is the enemy of the people. Just 31% said it was part of democracy. Think about that. And then think about the man who was filmed at the end of one of President Trump's recent rallies, screaming at the reporters there and calling them degenerate filth. What can we conclude from this? It is a sobering prospect and one we should all reckon with. I am choosing to believe that facts still matter, that truth is not subject to debate, that the term fake news is an abhorrent construct, that the legacy built by Edward R. Murrow still stands for something very, very important. And I think about the legacy left to us by the journalists who have died in the course of their work, or who in some cases were deliberately targeted because of their work, Jamal Khashoggi. Murray Colvin, Anthony Shadid, Chris Hondros, Tim Hetherington, Bruce mentioned the, the reporters at the Capital Gazette who were targeted, so many more. And in th I think in particular about NPR's supremely talented photojournalist named David Gilkey. David was on assignment for NPR in Afghanistan in June of 2016. He and, and our Afghan interpreter, Zabihula Tamana, were traveling with an Afghan army unit when that convoy came under fire and David and Zabi were both killed. David was able to turn NPR's radio journalism into visual journalism online that packed an incredible punch. What we aspire to do with sound, to create a deep, personal, intimate window into a story David was always able to capture with his camera. Look at his photographs from Iraq and Afghanistan, from the depths of the Ebola epidemic in Africa, from the earthquake in Haiti. Look at the faces he captured in times of war, in moments of despair, and sometimes joy. And you immediately know there is a man of great heart behind the lens. The camera that David was carrying on the day he died is preserved now, battered and dusty, in a case in NPR's lobby in Washington, DC. And above that camera, printed on the wall, is something that David once said to explain his hopes for what his work could do. 
It's not just reporting, he said. It's not just taking pictures. It's do the visuals, do the stories, do they change somebody's mind enough to take action? So if we're doing our part, it gets people to do their part. And then he added, hopefully. I think about that when I walk by that camera. I think about the terrible price that David and Zabi paid for their devotion. And I hope, I really, really hope that what David was hopeful about is true, that our work, the telling of stories that matter, that it does create change, that it inspires people to take action, to do their part. That sense of mission is actually built into NPR's DNA. In the mission statement that was written by one of the network's original founders, Bill Seemering, back in 1970. I've been lucky enough to get to know Bill over the years, and I keep some of his words pinned above my desk as a kind of touchstone. Stop for a minute and just think about how revolutionary this idea was back then in 1970, and how inspiring it still is now. Bill wrote, National Public Radio will not regard its audience as a market or in terms of its disposable income, but as, a curious, as, but as curious complex individuals who are looking for some understanding, meaning, and joy in the human experience. That's Melissa Block speaking at the Cub Auditorium on the campus of Washington State University. There is really nothing to add to what she had to say because it is so beautifully put. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, your host and producer. My thanks to Frank Shankwitz, Melissa Block, and Lennox Scott for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Now, the question of the week. In the spirit of Frank Shankwitz, the founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation, who you heard on today's show, if you could be guaranteed to have one wish come true in 2020, what would it be? Call 425-653-1166 and leave your message on the Voices of Experience hotline. That's 425-653-1166. If you could have one wish come true in 2020, what would it be? The quote of the week, he sacrifices his health to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he doesn't really enjoy the present, the result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he never is going to die, and then he dies, having never really lived. That's not for me. It's too deep for me. That's from the Dalai Lama. And thanks for those words of reflection as we close out 2019. Now, what is Voices of Experience about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, like today, travel, fitness, education, like today, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. Now, there's a checklist that I developed, and it's called the Self-Employment Quiz. The higher you score on the quiz the higher your prospects for success. To take the quiz, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. And again, a reminder that Voices of Experience airs Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. and again on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. 
You can also listen to all shows by Googling KKNW, click on to podcasts, and then locate Voices of Experience, and you are there. Have a great rest of the week and a wonderful Thanksgiving.